Well, today we begin a new series uh, in our Sunday school class. So the title of this set of uh, teachings is Worship, Biblical, and Reform. Um, and as you all know, well, many of you at least, we've been hoping to get to this class, this series, for a while now. Um, different circumstances, and God's providence has got pushed back to this, this time, but we were trying to do this uh, last year sometime, and it had been in the works even before that. So it's, it's nice to be able to get to this class and be able to teach through these things, which are really infor- important for how we understand worship, um, how our church as a Reformed Baptist church understands uh, worship, um, and as we hold to the 689, how you see it articulate worship and the means of grace and these things that are really important and we have convictions about. So that's what this class hopefully will will do. So as the... Um, as the title of the class says, we'll be studying uh, Worship, Biblical, and Reform. Now, when you think about it, there isn't a more important subject than the subject of worship. We were created to worship God. Creation, the fall, salvation, consummation is for the glory of God, for his honor, for his worship. So we'll be doing um, this over the next few months We'll be searching through the scriptures to get a biblical theology of worship. What does the Bible say as we look at these different texts on the subject of, of worship? So we'll do that, but we'll also look back at the history and practice of worship in Reformed churches and consider how they inform our practices today, where we've um, adopted, where we've uh, departed, um, and how do we uh, retrieve some of these things that are so important. Now, as we read and study to inform our minds and practice, the scriptures, of course, are the final judge. Uh, It's the uh, highest court and uh, the law and and judging and discerning uh, truth and what's good and what's right. But we also don't want to cut ourselves off from God's wisdom through brothers and sisters who came before us. So the church has been thinking on the subject of worship for a long time. So it's wise for us to look back to see how God has guided his church and her thinking in centuries past. So that's what we, we want to do as well. So we'll look at the Bible, we'll do like a biblical theology, and we'll look at church history, uh, do a historical theology as we journey through this class. Okay. Now, throughout this class, uh, we'll talk about the Sabbath and the Lord's Day. Um, we'll look at a biblical theology of worship, just sort of. These are the uh, like chapter headings, if I could put it that way. Um, Sabbath and the Lord's Day, a biblical theology of worship. We'll look at the reformer's perspective on worship and consider the patristics, which were early Christian theologians on the topic of worship as well. Uh, we'll talk about reading in corporate worship, praying in corporate worship, singing in corporate worship, and preaching in corporate worship. And then we'll talk about the uh, sacraments, baptism, and um, the Lord's Supper. And then we'll have a Q&A at the, at the end of that. So that's where we're headed over the next few months. And like I said, if, there, if questions come up, feel free to write them down or send them to us, whichever is more convenient for you. But uh, again, we're hoping that this, this class will be even a class that as things come up in the future that we can point people back to and say, um, you know, maybe re-listen to the class where we had, you know, we spent 45 minutes trying to sort of think through this thing and explain it, because that's sometimes easier 
um, than you know when we're in the foyer and someone says, "Hey, what's the Sabbath?" Like, we've got ten minutes. <laughs> How far do I go? Um, but this will be sort of helpful for that. I can sort of point you back back to that. All right. So the uh, class this morning will sort of start this series off with Sabbath and the Lord's Day, Part One. So each um, uh, chapter, let's say, in this book of this Sunday school series will be two weeks. Week one, week two, week one, week two. Each subject will cover two weeks. So Sabbath and the Lord's Day, Part One. The ground and the goal of Sabbath. Okay. So God created man in his image. He surrounded him with blessing uh, to show his goodness, his kindness, his love. He lavished man with um, all types of blessings. Um, A part of the blessing was a call, an invitation to worship God and to enjoy this full life under joyful submission to God's commands. But he also set parameters for man's life. We'll talk about that in a bit. He gave him a job description as well. God gave guardrails for Adam's own good and enjoyment. And the fullness of that enjoyment in God was found in the simple word rest. Now, I'm going to break up this class, and you'll see this in your handout as well. I put this together this past week. I hope it's helpful. Um, It'll sort of just pull out some of the points in these different sections. But we'll trace this class in this way. As a good Baptist, I went with P as the the, uh, beginning of each title. So we'll look at the pattern. We'll look at the principle. We'll look at the command or the precept. And we'll look at the place of rest. And then we'll end with um, unentered rest, the problem. And then we'll have just some closing observations. Okay. So I actually got that, that sort of layout, that pattern from Samuel Renahan, which has been really helpful. He and Richard Barcellus have been really helpful on this sub- subject of the pattern. And I'll, I'll have some book references for you too as, as well. So first, the pattern. Now let's read Genesis 1, 2 to 3. So turn to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 to 3. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And I may call on you guys to read at some point, but I'll start here in Genesis 2, 1 to 3. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, the context of Genesis 2 is God resting after he completed his work. So everything before this is actually God working. Genesis 1 is is this uh, narrative of God working, creating the heavens and the earth, the cosmos as a place over which he would rule. So Genesis 2 is the conclusion of that finished creation. So he worked, he created, then he rested. Verse 2 says, and he rested on the set on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So, or therefore, God blessed the seventh day. Now, this is the only day of the week that was blessed. In other words, he sanctified it. He set it apart. So having created the heavens and the earth 
and all that is in them, God sanctifies the seventh day. Now, if you look at Genesis 2, 1 to 3 in your Bibles, you won't see the word Sabbath there. But that's what the word rest means. It's Hebrew. Um, in Hebrew, it's, it's the word Shabbat, uh, Sabbath. So you can read it as on the seventh day, God Sabbath. Now, why did God Sabbath? Why did he rest? Does God get tired? Does he get exhausted and need sort of this uh, divine energy boost? Well, of course not. We know that what it means to be God is that God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything outside of himself, right? He is everything he needs within his own life as God is him, right? So no, God didn't rest because he was tired. Um, just like he didn't have to take six days to create the heavens and the earth. God could have made everything, plants, stars, constellation, everything in a millisecond. So why did it take six days to do it? Why did he take six days to do it? God took six days to create and he rested on the seventh day in order to be a teaching tool for man. Not just that, but yes, in order to be a teaching tool for man. He was setting a pattern that he expected man to follow. But that wasn't, it wasn't only supposed to be a pattern for Adam, but a principle for all men. Second uh, chapter here, um, section, principle. So God's rest was a symbol of what would happen in the future of man. So this rest, this Sabbath of God, is something that man would enjoy at the completion of his work. God created the earth and made Eden a place um, for Adam in the Garden of Eden. And he placed Adam in, in, in the Garden of Eden. Adam was supposed to work it, to keep it, and to expand it. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, God didn't create man and, and put him in the Garden of Eden because there was nothing for man to do because he was bored and God wanted to give him a, a playground. God put Adam in the Garden of Eden or the Eden Garden to imitate his own work and rest. So there's a, there's a pattern here. Adam was supposed to make the rest of the world like Eden, right? He was supposed to extend the garden to the ends of the earth, making the whole earth a place of worship, rest and worship. Telling his offspring what God commanded, he would duplicate God's image across the earth. And upon the completion of his work and labor, he would enter into God's rest, God's Sabbath. Work, rest, work, rest. So Adam's job description didn't only include positive commands to do something, to work and to keep the garden, to expand its borders, but it also included a command to not do something. <clears throat> Let me have someone read Genesis 2, 15 to 17. You can read it nice and loud so we all can, we all can hear you. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, thank you. 
Now, this command and Adam's response to it really sets the theme for the rest of the Bible. Something is happening here that becomes um, a theme or an underlying pattern, a precedent set for the rest of Scripture. So this text is really important. Adam was created a representative for man, a um, federal head, a federal representative. Like, um, I don't know how many of you watch basketball, but um, you have five men on the court, right? And they're, they're playing. Uh, if they win the championship, let's say, the whole team gets a ring, right? Those, those five men on the court, uh, they represent the rest of, of the team. And so in a similar way, uh, you have Adam as a representative for man. If he wins, we win. If he loses, we lose. And just like Christ is a representative for those who believe in him, right? Romans 5.14 even says Adam was a type of the one who was to come, right? So he was, even Adam was pointing to something to come. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the um, only thing in the garden forbidden to Adam. And it became a means through which the Lord would test Adam's heart. So Adam's obedience to this command would bring him and all men great blessing and eternal rest. And the violation of this command would bring upon Adam and Eve and all men death, destruction, and ruin. And some theologians even speculate, and I think with good reason, at least as I've sort of read through some of these things, that the tree of life that was in the garden would have been part of Adam's reward to establish him in a permanent state of righteousness and rest. Genesis 3.22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Uh, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Now, the Reformed Church has historically viewed what was happening in the garden um, and with Adam um, as being brought into covenant with God. They step back and they look at the scene in the garden and they say, something's happening here. Um, Adam is being brought into covenant with God. <clears throat> now, the principle of Adam being in covenant with God is important because some uh, context, it, it gives some context and some framework for a Sabbath rest. The covenant theme is also uh, not new to the history of the Reformed Church or the scriptures. Nehemiah Cox, who was a 17th century um, Baptist pastor and theologian, said that a covenant involves a declaration of God's sovereign pleasure concerning the benefits he would bestow on man, the communion they would have with him, and the way and means by which this will be enjoyed by them. In other words, all that means God, because God created Adam, because Adam belonged to God, because God wanted to enjoy fellowship with Adam, because God gave the way through which he would enjoy fellowship with him, a command and obedience or disobedience to that command, Adam was in covenant with God. So this is what we see concerning Adam, uh, God and Adam in the garden event. We see God's determination to have a positive relationship with Adam. We see Adam as a representative for all mankind, as a federal head. We see a condition or a command given 
don't eat from this tree. We see a penalty for disobedience, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And we see a promise of reward for obedience, eternal rest, and a better state for all mankind. So Adam was in covenant with God, and it was a covenant of works. It was a a covenant where he would work for the reward. Hosea 6, 7 says, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They dealt faithlessly with me. So there seems to be this looking back on what happened in the garden and saying there's 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 this is the um, dressing of this is covenant like something about this looks like a, a covenant. And this inter- this interpretation of Hosea six, seven, seeing um, that as a, a covenant goes back to Jerome in the in the 400s. And many theologians since him have interpreted this text along with uh, texts like Isaiah twenty twenty four to be saying that Adam was in covenant with God and specifically a covenant through which he would work for the reward. Now, what does this have to do with the Sabbath and rest? Here's the principle. God worked and then he rested, which is a picture of his, his enthronement. Adam was to work and then rest, and he would also enjoy Sabbath as he was working toward the eternal, unbreakable Sabbath. The eternal rest of God would be Adam's reward, not only through his expanding the garden, but through his obedience and not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when he sinned, he failed to obtain that rest, which we'll look at more later. Okay, so there's the pattern God working and resting. There's the the principle, Adam and man, following that pattern of working and resting. So now we're at the third P, the precept, the command. So let's look at uh, Moses and Exodus concerning the Sabbath. So I I don't... uh, doubt that if you've done any reading on the Sabbath, you come across books and articles uh, maybe making the argument that the Sabbath um, is not relevant for today. <clears throat> I'm making arguments against the relevance of, of the Sabbath for today. And usually the argument says something like this. The Sabbath was established with the nation of Israel when God made them a nation by giving them the law, his, his Ten Commandments. But what's interesting is that even Moses, when he um, presents the law to the people, he points back to something before him and before Israel. You see this in Exodus uh, chapter 20, verse 8 to 11. So let me have someone read Exodus 28 to 11. You can turn there as well in your Bible so we can look at this together. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, thank you. And I want to... 
read another text here that I think would be helpful. Um, Exodus 16. I'm going to start at verse 22 and then read down to uh, 28. Exodus 16, 22 to 28. It says, On the seventh day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord God commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside, uh, lay aside to be kept until the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning and Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today for today. It is a, for today is a Sabbath of the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather and they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Now, this um, occasion in Exodus 16 is uh, prior to 20, not just because in the numbers it goes 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. But this is this event, as you read through uh, this, the, the book and this narrative is prior to the prior to Exodus 20 and the giving of the law. And what's interesting about this, in Exodus 16 at least, the Lord says, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my Sabbath? That language, how long will you refuse to keep, it, it, it's assuming that this isn't the first time that there's been some violation of a Sabbath. He seems to be using language that says, again, how long will you keep doing this? Again, this is, this is before the Ten Commandments. And so he's pointing, God is pointing back to something prior to the law and saying, y'all are doing this, this again. Um, that, that shows us that this was a pre-Mosaic uh, law um, establishment. We would say, I would say it's a creation ordinance. Paul Martin, which is really helpful on this too, um, the uh, Christian Sabbath, uh, he says that, before there was an Israel or a Moses or tablets of stone at Sinai, God established the Sabbath at creation. He did the same with the ordinances of marriage and procreation and labor. We rightly assume the perpetuity of these ordinances. Should we not assume the perpetuity or permanence of a Sabbath since it rests on the same creation foundation? So this principle, again, it isn't new to church history. It isn't new to the Bible. <clears throat> this is uh, the perspective and the approach to this that we've seen in Scripture and in church history. So the command given to Israel under the Mosaic law is rooted in something that came before it. The fourth commandment, the commandment to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, is rooted in creation. The pattern becomes a principle. The principle becomes a precept or a command. But the command is rooted back in the pattern set by God at the beginning. <clears throat> now, if that is true, that means that the Sabbath doesn't die with Israel as a nation because it wasn't born with Israel as a nation. It didn't start with the physical nation of Israel and it doesn't end with the physical nation 
of Israel. Now, that, that being said, there are some things that do go away when the New Testament comes, which we'll talk about this more next week. It's the goal, we're willing. Some of the ways that uh, the physical people of Israel observe the Sabbath in the Old Testament don't apply today. Because we're not a physical nation, ethnic nation of Israel in some land called Canaan. And so the rules associated with how to observe the fourth commandment have changed. Worship is still at the core, um, this, this core principle as it is written on the hearts of men by virtue of them being God's creatures. But the additional laws on top of the core principle of worship and rest have changed. Those things were put for Israel as a nation in Canaan, and they have been taken away, right? But the core principle there remains. That hasn't changed. <clears throat> okay, so back to the principle of Sabbath and the command of Sabbath. Your heart is boss, and as it, when, I, when I'm quoting from these different men, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm doing that historical theology aspect that, that I mentioned at the beginning. A biblical theology and a historical theology. I'm trying to draw from some of these um, brothers who came before us who thought about this subject much more deeply than I have <laughs> and who God is using the church to think through this clearly and helpfully. But Gerhardus Voss, another 19th century theologian, saw a connection here as well. He said, another reason for the fourth commandment getting more discussion is due to the principle underlying it. Man must copy God and his course of life. God's rest is prototypical or a first model of man's. It stands for consummation or completion of the work accomplished and the joy and satisfaction attended or dependent upon it. So <clears throat> this is not only the duty of man individually, but that of the entire race throughout its history. Voss says, which is again, I think really helpful here. If the Sabbath started with creation, it's binding and expectant of all men as long as creation exists, is what he's bringing out there. So, <clears throat> back to my P uh, uh, titles. We've looked at the pattern, the Sabbath as a pattern, the Sabbath as a principle, the Sabbath as a precept or a command. Now let's consider the Sabbath as a place of rest. Well, this was um, really interesting and helpful um, as I was studying through this, the Sabbath as a place of rest. Now, back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden. The Sabbath was a symbol for man of what he had been called to do. Again, that complete his work and then rest. The Sabbath was a day of rest, but it was also a place of rest. Remember in Genesis 1 and 2, after God creates the heavens and the earth, the cosmos, he ceases from his labor and he rested. We already said he didn't rest because he was tired. He rested to be a, a pointer to set a principle for man. So he created, he labored, and then he rested. So he goes from, we can put it like this, a royal work creating to a royal rest, Sabbathing as the king of his completed creation. So he works, sits back, he rests. I have created all of this. I, I have done this. And he rules over that which he created. And so the Bible uses this language of earth becoming God's footstool. 
In other words, the cosmos is a place that God inhabits. The earth, and more specifically the Garden of Eden, is a meeting place between God and man and a resting place for God after he creates and completes his work. So what does that have to do with Eden or the Sabbath? The first and original place of rest between God and men was the Garden of Eden. One theologian said that the Garden of Eden is not viewed by the author of Genesis simply as a piece of Mesopotamian farmland, but as an archetypical or a representative sanctuary. That is a place where God dwells and where man should worship him. Okay, so man's goal was to enter God's rest, God's Sabbath, but the achievement of that goal for Adam came through his obedience and work and labor of expanding God's place of rest throughout the whole earth. Now, this is important when we consider the end goal of Sabbath rest. Spiritual rest from working for righteousness, yes, but also the whole earth which becomes a special place of God's meeting with men. It becomes a temple place of God's dwelling. This is what Adam failed to do. Now, that's really important when you get to Revelation and you get to sort of the, the end of the story. And some of these themes, right, we're, we're, we're setting up hooks on which to hang ideas. When we get to the end, we start to pull those down and say, ah, this is what he was talking about. Oh, the whole earth does become this place of worship. Oh, so Adam was a type of Christ, but Christ does what Adam failed to do. And we can put the Bible together better and really do a good job of interpreting the scriptures and have a strong hermeneutic. And it really comes out of some of these principles that are set, these patterns that are set as we try and uh, see how the Bible works together and see what the big picture is. Okay, so we're, again, we're thinking about uh, rest as not just um, a time, a day, but a place, rest as a place. Now, let me back up and just make a few observations on the Sabbath in relation to God's place of rest. Eden was the first temple of God's rest. The Lord God walked in Eden as he later does in the tabernacle. We see that in Leviticus 26, 12, Deuteronomy 23, 15, 2 Samuel 6, 7. And you have this in your handout as well. Psalm 132, 7 to 8 says... Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Psalm 132, 13 to 14 says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. First Chronicles 28.2 says, Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for the building. Again, 
the point here is that the Sabbath rest of God included not only a day or a time of rest, but a place of rest. And the language even used of Adam when he's um, placed in the Eden Garden, the language he's, it, that's used there in the Hebrew to talk about his working and keeping, you see come up later on in the Bible, and it's used of priests when they're in the tabernacle. The same language, um, the same original language, working and keeping. And so there's, a, there, there's something happening here. There's a theme here. Um, that points to, yes, a time and a day, but also points to a place. Adam was a type of priest and his working and his keeping. <clears throat> and he was to model God in his work and rest. Now, hopefully I can uh, tie some of these concepts together as we look at the problem of unentered rest. The rest that man failed to enter into. So I want to mention again, I think Lawrence has them. We've handed out note cards. These note cards are for you to write down questions that come to mind either here during this time or you can take them with you on the way home when you're talking about the service and the Lord's Day. And, oh, man, I didn't think about that. Or he didn't talk about that. Write it down. Um, bring it to us. And as I mentioned before, you can also email the elders as well. Because we do want to have a Q&A at the end of this to be able to walk through some of these things. So don't feel like there's a question that's off limits. Just write it down and we'll try and work through it. We don't have all the answers to everything, but as much as we can, we've been reading and thinking we want to help our church to think through these things together. So feel free to write your question down and we'll um, answer it at a later time. And then also, if I finish in time, I'll, I'll try and leave a couple of minutes for some questions here, but um, it's a lot to cover the Sabbath and the Bible <laughs> in 50 minutes. <laughs> So please bear with me as I work through this. Okay, so we talked about, what was the first? The pattern, the principle, the precept, the place, and now the problem, unentered rest. Okay. So Adam failed to extend Eden. We know this because you can look at the world around you and see that uh, he, he failed. He, he didn't accomplish that, that work. We see that from sin around us and in us. Remember Adam's job description, though. It was work, completed rest, or consummate work, the enthronement, and eternal rest. So Adam's work was unfinished and failed because of his disobedience of God's command. The completion of his work of expanding the garden would have brought him and his offspring into the eternal, unbreakable rest of God. Upon bringing the earth to consummation, Adam would have joined God's rest. Remember, there was a, a reward held out to Adam. There was, um, a, uh, there was a tree. There was a command given. Uh, there was nothing significant about the tree itself. It was a command given to test Adam's heart, his obedience or his disobedience. Um, upon obedience, he would achieve the reward. Upon disobedience, we see his failure. Now, after the fall, Eden was closed um, and Adam was not at rest. He, he, he didn't accomplish it. Genesis 3.24 says that because Adam sinned, God drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So Adam was fired. I've been, have I been fired before? 
I've, I've, I've never been fired. I've quit after working six hours at Disney, but that's a different story. That, that is a true story, I'll tell you about it later. But Adam was, <laughs> Adam was fired, right? He, he didn't accomplish the, the finished work. He didn't get a two weeks notice. He was fenced from the Garden of Eden. He failed. So the way into the special dwelling place of God's presence was off limits. No one was allowed to enter. This was now mission impossible. And we'll again talk later about when they were allowed to enter, what were the stipulations? What did that look like? But the garden was, was off limits. No one can enter. Abraham comes on the scene, and one of the blessings associated with his people um, as he would be created into a people of God, one of the blessings associated with it is rest. It's rest. God told Abram to go to a land, Canaan, and this land would have as a benefit of rest for him and his people. But the Old Testament people of God have a long history filled with promises of obedience uh, followed by disobedience. Uh, which isn't much different from our own hearts, right? When we look at Israel, we all see ourselves. When we look at their saying, all that you said we will do, Lord, and then like two minutes later, they're doing what he said not to do. Um, it's really, Israel is really a picture of our, of our own hearts. But they failed uh, to um, obey God as they were commanded to do. Deuteronomy 5.27 says, Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to us and we will hear and do it. The history of Israel has a constant refrain of all that you say we will do followed by not doing, not obeying. And so over and over, they would disqualify themselves from inheriting that rest. Although Israel did not obey God consistently, they, sorry, I read that wrong. Although Israel did, did not obey God consistently so that they could not enjoy that ultimate rest, uh, being a light to the nations and inviting them to enter that rest as well, they were still given Sabbaths. And the weekly Sabbath that they enjoyed was a reminder of what they were missing out on. It was a privilege, it was a benefit, and a pointer to what they were created for. <clears throat> there were weekly Sabbaths, there was, there was a seven-year Sabbath, there was 50-year uh, Sabbath of uh, rest in the land. So there were other Sabbaths, but that weekly Sabbath was to remind them of what was held out to them, what, was, what they were missing out on, and what the Lord was ultimately wanting to bring men into. Now, some verses. Exodus, Exodus 16, 22-23. Let me have someone go to Exodus 16, 22-23. I have these in your handout. Let me double check. Uh, yes. So on the, on the back of your handout, let me have someone go to Exodus 16, 22 to 23. Someone else go to Exodus 31. Well, who, who wants Exodus 16? Let me have somebody take that. Dan the man, thank you. Um, then Exodus 31, 14 to 15. Okay. All right, Harrison. And then Isaiah 56, 2, Peto. And then 2 Samuel 7, 10 to 11. All right, Will. Okay. So Dan Harrison, Pito, Will Parker. So Exodus 16, 22 to 23. Go ahead and read that for us. 
On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over, lay aside to be kept till the morning. Okay, thank you. So this is the text we read, I read earlier where the Lord said, how long will you violate my command? Pointing to something before the law even came. Okay, let's go to Exodus 31. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among the people. Six days Okay, thank you. So again, as we're reading these, we're thinking about the, uh, the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath given to the people of Israel. Again, as a pointer of um, the ultimate Sabbath that they were to be brought into um, and uh, as, a, as a weekly observance of, of worship and rest. Um, Isaiah 56, 2. Who has that? Blessed is the man who does this, the Son of Man who takes hold of it, who keeps profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Okay. And then one last text Isaiah 58, 13 to 14. Or 2 Samuel. Oh, what did I say? Yes, 2 Samuel, sorry. Uh, First Chronicles 28, is that what I said? Well, after that, you have 58, 13, and 14. Oh. That was obviously supposed to be Isaiah. Yes, that was supposed to be Isaiah. (laughs) Sorry, my mistake. Okay, I'll read, thank you. Um, I'll I'll read Isaiah 58, 13, and 14. (laughs) He said there is no First Chronicles 58. (laughs) No, there's not. He's not in my Bible. Okay, so Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing what your pleasure, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and called the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. <clears throat> there is a uh, language of pleasure and delight associated with the Sabbath here. If you call the Sabbath a delight, um, not seeking your own pleasure and contrast it with seeking this other pleasure, <clears throat> the Lord, worship and rest. So again, the people were given weekly Sabbaths but they were not able to enter into that which, to which the weekly Sabbath pointed, God's eternal rest. Joshua gave Israel rest, but it was only for a little while. Joshua 21:44 says, And the Lord God gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. This rest was interrupted, by the people's sinfulness and rebellion against their covenant God. 
It wasn't laziness that interrupted the work. It was the rest. It was sinfulness. That's important. Not laziness, but sinfulness. The one who promised and held out this rest to them, uh, they violated his command. In the book of Judges, you hear a common theme. And what is that common theme? You think about Judges, and where do you hear over and over and over? They did what was right in their own eyes. That's one of them. That's not the one I'm thinking about, but that's one of them. (laughs) Um, The other common theme along with that is, so the land had rest for 40 years, Judges 3.11. And the land had rest for 80 years, Judges 3.30. And the land had rest for 40 years, Judges 5.21. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon, Judges 8.28. Rest, 40 years. Rest, 80 years. Rest, 40 years. This pattern shows us that the rest that the people enjoyed was only temporary. Why? Because the people constantly rejected God's commands, like Adam in the garden, and did what was right in their own eyes. And listen to 2 Samuel 7. When God makes a covenant with the King David, the King David. Second Samuel 7, 10 and 11, it says, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house once again you see the theme of rest that, that's not by accident the goal for national ethnic, ethnic Israel as they journeyed through um, uh, as they journeyed was rest in Canaan they would sin and get kicked out of the land of rest they would disobey and God would send foreign nations to take them into captivity out of the land of rest they would go after other gods false gods play the harlot kill God's prophets who reminded them of God's commands and warned them to repent or God would punish them. And punishment looked like the removal from Canaan, the land of rest. Even the tabernacle was constantly moving. It was constructed, then destructed, and then constructed, and destructed. Even that, even the tabernacle wasn't at rest. <clears throat> and like I mentioned before, the tabernacle temple represented the meeting place of God's special presence with man, just like the garden of Eden. So Adam was not able to enter into God's rest. Israel was not able to permanently enter into God's rest. But the whole pattern comes out of what God established at the very beginning at creation. Man to imitate God's work, completed work, enthronement, and then rest. Ultimately, when we back up and try to get sort of the meta narrative, the big picture of what's going on in the Bible, the Sabbath rest of God is at the center. God's story tells us that he rested. It tells us, uh, or rather, it tells us that he created. It tells us what he created. It tells us why he created man in the first place and what man was supposed to do. And it tells us why there's so much trouble and sin in the world, where why history is, uh, or why, why the world is so broken and where history is headed. Okay, so I want to uh, close uh, with some observations. 
So Richard Barcella said that understanding the creation Sabbath or the creator Sabbath helps us to understand the entire Bible. All right, so we'll do some closing observations. Uh, the beginning and the end. We want to look at some things in the beginning, look at some things in the end, and try and just do a quick flyby to uh, see how the Bible connects the end with the beginning. Again, this isn't meant to be exhaustive, but hopefully accessible um, and to stir you on to um, more study and to look, look through these things and even uh, ask, ask some questions as they come up. All right, so um, a few headings and observations that, again, I, I drew this from Richard Barcelos. He has a really helpful um, book here, uh, Getting the Garden Right is a really, really good book. Adam's Work in God's Rest in Light of Christ. Um, I haven't uh, read through it cover to cover, but I've read good uh, portions of it in sections um, and, and thinking through the Sabbath and work, and it's been really, really helpful. But he has some, some um, observations that I want to just mention before we close out here. So, one, the devil who first appears in Genesis 3, who deceived Adam and Eve, ends up thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible has a thread within it that deals with the effects of the devil's activity, not only in the garden, but afterwards as well. Revelation 27 um, to 10. Uh, and if you look at this in your Bibles, the, the subtitle of the passage will probably say something like the defeat of Satan in Revelation 27 to 10. But it says this. And when the thousand years ended, Satan will be released from prison and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number will be like the sands of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire or sulfur where the beast and the prophet and false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. The serpent at the beginning will be destroyed at the end. Second, the first heavens and the first earth of Genesis 1-1 become a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21-1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, uh, there, and, and there is no longer any sea. So, uh, and then Peter also tells us uh, in this new heaven and new earth, uh, that righteousness dwells there, Second Peter 3.13. Remember, God kicked Adam, uh, Adam um, and Eve out of the garden because they sinned and became uh, unrighteous. But uh, the garden will expand, and the earth will be a meeting place for God and his people. Three, the tree of life, first revealed in Genesis 2, ends up in the new earth. Describing the eternal state, Revelation 22.2 2 says... On either side of the river was the tree of life. Revelation 22:14 also says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. The eschatological city, the new earth, contains the tree of life, which first appears in the Bible in Genesis 2:9. 4. God will dwell among all the citizens of the new earth. How? Because the whole earth will be what Eden was, but better. The whole earth will be the special dwelling place of the presence of God. Revelation 21 and 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 
the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. God dwelt in the land, uh, God dwelt in the garden with Adam and Eve, but they were exiled from the first dwelling place of God because of sin. Then God dwelt in Israel's tabernacle and temple. And in the end, the whole earth will be a special dwelling place of God among men. Fifthly, as Owen would say, fifthly, there will no longer be any death in, in, in the new earth. Revelation 21.4 says, there will no longer be any death. Death uh, came when, of course, sin came back in Genesis 3. And the new earth, there will no longer be any death. And then six. And final here, the curse that was inflicted in Genesis 3 due to Adam's sin is no more. No more curse. Revelation 22.3 says, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bond servants will serve him. Due to not serving God, the curse came upon man and the earth. In the eternal state, there will no longer be any curse. Okay? The end... Um, shown uh, by looking at the beginning or the, the goal of the beginning shown by looking at the end. And we can see how the Bible fits together when we look at Genesis and Revelation. But the goal of Sabbath is man entering into God's eternal rest. Not just a time um, and, but a place. And so uh, next week, we'll see that this place is actually a person. Um, we'll look at, Lord willing, next week, uh, some things that were associated with the Old Testament Sabbath. When I mentioned those laws put on top of the moral law of the Sabbath that were taken away, we'll look at some of those. Um, we'll look at the Sabbath in the New Testament, um, Lord's Day, the change, why, how, who has the authority to change it, why did it change in the first place. Um, and then we'll look at uh, consummation, the end goal of uh, Sabbath rest. Try and do that next week. Uh, pray for me as I try and put this all into one class. It's, it's not easy. But um, I hope this was helpful. And again, it's meant to not be exhaustive, but hopefully accessible and maybe give you some, you know, wind behind your sails as you search this out. And, you know, we continue the conversation on this. OK. And then also, thank you, Lawrence. If you did write down any questions, uh, please place them in the box um, and, or you can you know, give them to us as you see us throughout this morning or email them. And again, you can go to the website, ask the pastors if you can find it. I'm sorry, I can't tell you where it's at, but it's there somewhere. You can search it. But feel free to send your questions. We welcome them. We want to think through it um, together and hopefully um, you know, we can all be encouraged and edified as, as we look at this. Okay, well, let me pray for us. Lord, we give you uh, thanks for your mercy. Uh, we thank you for the blessing of uh, the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath and uh, the Lord's Day. We pray that you would um, help us to, uh, to retrieve and to receive um, with pure hearts and clear minds all that you have given and determined to give to us through your divine means of grace, through these things which you give for our benefit, our spiritual nourishment, our encouragement. Pray that you would, um, Lord, bless us throughout this series, that it would be helpful and useful, that as we think through these things together, as we, as the elders, pastors, teach through these things, 
that we would uh, do it in such a way that honors you, that is faithful to your word, that is um, not prideful and neglecting the wisdom of the church that came before us. And I help us, Lord, to uh, do these things with reverence and awe, for we talk of holy things. We talk of eternal things. And we want um, this to be pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.